1976, an Army veteran named Jim McKelvey was accepted into an alcoholism counseling program at Johns Hopkins University. He applied for VA benefits, and they told him no. This is Sue McKelvey. Jim McKelvey was my husband for 50 years. Jim passed away in 2013. He's survived by Sue and four kids, including Debbie. My name's Deborah Pierman. I go by Debbie. According to VA rules at the time, veterans have to use their GI benefits within 10 years of their discharge from the military. Jim had just missed the window, but there was an exception. Veterans are granted an extension on the deadline if the reason they were unable to use those benefits within 10 years was because of a disability or disorder. This was the exception that Jim sought. So he reapplied many times and they kept refusing him. And somewhere in that process, he got a lawyer. You see, there was an exception to the exception in the VA benefits guideline. Jim could get an extension on his benefits only if he wasn't at fault for having the disorder or disability. In the language of the law, the disorder or disability couldn't have resulted from his own willful misconduct. The analogy, and this is the exact one given in the statute, is that if you knowingly drank some poison and became disabled as a result, then you're at fault for the disability, so no extension. It was on these grounds that the VA denied the extension to Jim. They claimed that his disorder was his fault. He would jokingly say that he was a member of the CIA, Catholic Irish alcoholic, kind of describe exactly who he was. (laughs) And that did describe it. Jim's disorder was alcoholism. He appealed it, he reapplied, and it was district court in Washington. And Scalia was one of the judges who said, no, they denied it. A full 10 years after the VA first denied benefits to Jim McKelvey, he and a co-plaintiff, Eugene Trainer, brought their case before the Supreme Court of the United States. Just being in the Supreme Court was just amazing to me. It was a case that had the potential to once and for all set a precedent in the U.S. judicial system and treat alcoholism and addiction as a disease or disability. From Vassar College, you're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Today we're going to look at the disease model of addiction as it played out in two court cases, one 30 years ago, one today. While almost everyone in public health has been talking about the disease of addiction, the legal system still treats drug use as something you can be at fault for doing, even as an addict. The few times that this issue has been litigated, governments keep citing the same thing. Free will. Well, this week we look at how the American courts can't shake the language of free will in their characterizations of drug use, and why that characterization has led to almost no progress in 60 years' worth of litigation on addiction. I'm Hannah Pickard. I'm a professor in philosophy at the University of Birmingham and visiting Princeton's program in cognitive science. And I've also worked clinically in a therapeutic community for people with personality disorders and complex needs for the last 10 years. The disease model definitely is dominant in the scientific community right now. And I think it's arguably quite dominant in our popular conception as well. And it's a model of addiction which treats drug taking as compelled by 
a neurobiological state. People use drugs when addicted because they have no control and something is wrong with the brain as opposed to anything to do with the person and choices they make or agency. The official characterization of alcoholism as a disease goes back to the World Health Organization and American Medical Association in the early 50s. The disease model in America goes even farther back, all the way to the founding fathers. Dr. Benjamin Rush was the most famous doctor in the early days of the nation. He'd signed the Declaration of Independence, served in the Revolutionary War. He wrote an essay called Inquiry into the Effects of Ardent Spirits Upon the Human Body and Mind. It's a pretty remarkable document. Half anthropological descriptions of him observing drunk men at Philadelphia taverns. Half observations about how alcoholism seems to progress in stages, like many diseases, eventually leading to death in some cases. He also noticed that it seemed to be heritable. Alcoholism ran in families. He characterized taking a drink as, first, an act of free agency. And through the progression of this disease-like condition, drinking becomes an act of necessity. We might call that compulsion. I was baffled when uh, I was initially turned down for those benefits. I, at first, I thought somebody was pulling my leg. That's Jim McKelvey on the steps of the Supreme Court on the day of oral arguments. I can assure you I did not will to be an alcoholic, and I can also assure you I did not will to drink a half a gallon of bourbon a day in, in the final days of my alcoholism. No alcoholic has the will or willpower to turn down a drink. If I was a diabetic, if I had cancer, there'd be no question about this. I think the Veterans Administration's stigma towards alcoholism sort of takes us back 50 years. Alcoholism, a moral problem or something like that. One of the popular understandings which used to be dominant before the disease model was the moral model, where people saw addiction first as a choice, but second of all, and this is incredibly important because it needn't follow just because you see addiction as a choice, they also saw it as a bad choice, as a morally wrong choice. So the moral model saw addicts as making a lifestyle choice which was wrong and sinful and something which, as a society, we ought to condemn. Sue and Jim met while he was in the Army in the mid-60s. Debbie was born not long after that. Jim started drinking at age 13. 13 is probably mild. I think he probably drank before that. And while he was in the Army, he did a lot of drinking, but it never interfered with anything. He got out in 66. He was honorably discharged. It sort of caught up with him, and he couldn't work anymore. After about 70, 71, he was drinking pretty much 24 hours a day. During that period, I think he was in the hospital maybe 28, 30 times in about a four-year period to be detoxed. So I was very young during my dad's drinking. Both my mom and dad both kept uh, all of us kids very shielded. I had been going to Al-Anon for maybe a year, year and a half, and it changed me the way I treated him. The drinking was his problem, not mine. And it was a Saturday. I was a scout leader, and there was a scout exposition for the Cub Scouts, and the three kids and I went to the exposition because our troop had stuff. And I know he was drunk when I left, 
And when I got home, there were two priests going down in the elevator of our building, and one of them said, oh, that must be the wife when I got in. And I just thought, oh, what did he do now? Father Gregory is the priest that came who was an alcoholic himself. And Jim kept saying, you need to give me the last rites because I'm dying. And he said, I am not going to give you the last rites. I'm not here to save your soul. I'm here to save your ass. And he said he was going to go to AA. He was going to stop drinking. Everything was going to change. And I just thought, yeah, I've heard it before. But it did. For the next year, Jim went into recovery. And his entire world revolved around AA. After work, he went to meetings, not coming home until bedtime. And when he's not at meetings, he brings the other recovering alcoholics over for dinner. There would be a priest, homeless men. Peter, who was a transvestite, a very wild character. Yeah. Peter was from Ireland. Flaming red hair. Yes. But wore boas and... Oh, yeah. This is in the 70s. I I had never seen a man uh, dressed as a woman before. And he was our babysitter. He used to love to put your hair in rollers. AA is so much a part of Jim's life that Sue suggests to him that he do it for a living, go back to school, become an alcohol counselor. By the time Jim's case makes it to the Supreme Court, he's out of school and well into his career. The relevant regulation from the VA was that if you're an alcoholic as a result of some other disease or disorder, such as depression or PTSD, then your alcoholism isn't the result of willful misconduct. But if you're just an alcoholic and have no other disorder, then that alcoholism is the result of your willful misconduct. Both Jim and Eugene Trainer did not claim any other disorder. And so McKelvey Trainer versus the VA had the potential to set a precedent that addiction or substance use disorder, as it's now called, cannot be a basis of discrimination under the law the popular press at the time looked to the case as a decision that could affirm the disease model of addiction in American law. But McKelvey and Trainer lost. It was a narrow decision, four to three. I don't think my dad felt defeated. I think he felt kind of empowered because it really got word out and really got the, the dialogue going in the news, uh, in magazines, and people in general talking about alcoholism. It was more positive then. Yeah, taking away the the stigma of being an alcoholic. In their decision, the majority cited the fact that the disease model of addiction is not universally agreed upon. They cited papers that claimed that even if alcoholism were a disease, its cure requires acts of voluntary control. So the disease itself must originate at least somewhat in the will of the agent. And finally, the majority took the line that if addiction at least somewhat originates in the will of the agent, then it's enough for Congress and the VA to make a blanket claim that alcoholism is the result of willful misconduct for the purposes of denying benefits. In Justice Blackman's dissent, he argued that the VA was generalizing about alcoholics in precisely the way that was prohibited under federal law. Blackman wrote, that it might be true that some alcoholics have their disease as a result of willful misconduct. But you don't get to presume they all do just because their alcoholism is not the result of other mental illnesses. Maybe some are willful choices, 
Some are brain-induced compulsions. Some are environmentally-induced compulsions. And finally, Blackman argued that just because the cure for a condition requires acts of will, it does not follow that the cause of the condition was an act of will. Managing type 2 diabetes requires many acts of will, like dieting. But that doesn't mean that the cause of every case of type 2 diabetes is an act of will. The majority in the Supreme Court were not convinced of Justice Blackmun's reasoning. But many important people were. Later that year, Congress decided to act and overturned the decision in McKelvey Trainer versus the VA. They explicitly altered the regulation in the relevant section of the VA benefits to state that alcoholism will be treated as any other disease or disorder. Jim and Eugene Trainer got the law changed for future veterans like themselves. I think my dad felt elated. He knew that he wasn't getting the benefits, but he was excited at the idea that future men and women who served in the military hopefully would be able to get their benefits if they got sober. But the ending wasn't fully happy for American law. Because the court ruled against McKelvey Trainer, no legal precedent was set for the treatment of alcoholism as a fault-free disorder in American law. And Congress didn't pass sweeping legislation on addiction. They overturned a tiny regulation about veteran benefits. The litigation would continue for at least another 30 years, which brings us to today. My name is Lisa Newman-Polk. I am a lawyer and a social worker and a criminal justice advocate. Lisa Newman-Polk is a criminal defense attorney in the Boston area. She reminds me a lot of my own public defender friends. Though Lisa isn't a public defender anymore. She's in private practice. They have this strange mix of relentlessness and resignation in the face of constant injustice. Like Tom Hanks at the end of Saving Private Ryan, sitting there half dead shooting a pistol at a Nazi tank. I worked as a public defender for four years, and in that process, the vast majority, I would say you know, 90% of my clients were suffering from mental health issues, which include substance use disorder, also known as drug addiction. Early on in my practice, I remember very specifically a young woman, it was so evident, she was desperate to not use drugs. She was desperate to be completely sober. She had also committed theft. She gets put on probation. I think I do this great job getting her a great deal. All she needs to do is be drug free. That's all she has to do. And then everything will be fine. And within a week, she comes in and she ends up testing positive. And I see her in the hallway of the courthouse and she tells me what's happened. And I remember at that moment, having this moment of judgment, like, come on, get it together. You know, like I did all this work on your case and you can't just be drug free. And the look that I remember her having in her face of just this desperation, not wanting to disappoint me, feeling like a failure to herself. I realized I've got this wrong. Like there's something going on here that I don't understand. From there, Lisa goes back to school for social work, addiction counseling in particular. She gets a master's and starts working as a drug counselor in the prison system. Now she's dealing from the inside with these drug-free court orders for her clients. And what I started to realize as a therapist is it was really interfering with my ability to do healthy, authentic, productive work with my clients because 
The first thing you learn in treating addiction is that a person needs to be able to talk about what's going on, needs to be able to talk about either urges to relapse or actual relapse. And if we're in a dynamic, like I was in as a therapist with people on probation and parole, where their truthfulness could have this result where they go to jail, that is a true massive problem for a therapist. Then this unhealthy dynamic gets created where therapist is trying to find ways to avoid telling the court when really what I kept thinking to myself is, can we all just be able to be honest and can the court stay out of it? If I have a client who's showing up to therapy every single day, five days a week to this program, if they're not doing well, then we're not doing something well also within our program to help that person get better. And we in the program need to think about what are we not doing? After working as an addiction counselor with clients on probation, parole, and in prisons, Lisa went back to the public defender's office and decided to take her new skills and knowledge into the drug courts. The drug courts are small specialty courts where teams of lawyers, judges, law enforcement, and even social workers are supposed to take a public health approach to offenders whose crimes arise from substance use disorders. I'm constantly amazed by how much work gets put into what turn out to be important but ultimately powerless documents. The drug courts have a national association, the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, NADCP. They publish a document called the Adult Drug Court Best Practices Standard. This document contains decades of empirical data telling judges about what has been shown to work and what has been shown to make things worse for addiction and addiction-based crime. It has studied-based conclusions like this. Quote, Drug courts are significantly more effective and cost-effective when they jail sparingly. Research in drug courts indicate that jailing produces diminishing returns after approximately three to five days. Jailing people for more than one week led to increases in recidivism, and jailing people for more than two weeks led to increased recidivism and increased cost. The document even gives recommendations for the conduct of judges. Judges that take the time to listen to a defendant's story, show a little understanding, and come across as fair, have significantly better outcomes, like the reduction of crime in their district, than judges that appear to be punitive. It's a document that's so reasonable, it's bound to be ignored. In the drug courts I was in, unfortunately, it was the policy of the judge that if somebody tested positive for drugs, they were going to be incarcerated. And I became increasingly distressed by this, increasingly upset. I didn't really know what to do because there was nothing legally to appeal. If an order is to be drug-free, the judge has a right to incarcerate. I made a complaint to a supervising judge who was in charge of specialty courts. And that complaint was not well received. Ultimately, the judge kicked me out of his court and uh, kicked me off all of my drug court cases and said I was no longer allowed to represent my 11 clients. After I got kicked out, um, I was so angry, upset, and frustrated that not only had I been basically effectively told I lose my voice in, in, in standing up for people with this issue in that drug court setting, 
I just thought, okay, well, you know what? The only way to feel better is to try to keep advocating for this issue and find a different way to do it. And I'm a lawyer. If I think that this is so wrong, then there's a legal claim. Lisa went to Massachusetts General Hospital to the doctors there in charge of addiction treatment and talked to them about their experiences with the court system and how it hindered the treatment process. They agreed to support her in her efforts to construct a legal argument she was developing about addiction and the criminal law. Drug use, when somebody especially has a severe substance use disorder, is essentially a symptom of this medical disorder. If this is a symptom, how can we order it away? How can a court order somebody to just stop having this symptom? After Lisa developed the beginnings of her argument, she had to wait for the right client who was the victim of the right kind of injustice so she can take the claim up the court system. Julie Eldred at the time was a 28-year-old woman who had been placed on probation for a period of one year after she had admitted that she had stolen jewelry. Technically, the offense was larceny over, which is a felony in Massachusetts. Julie was addicted to opioids. She had been addicted since her early teenage years, and prior to that, she was medicated as a child for ADHD. There's a high correlation between ADHD and substance use disorders. Whether it's because of the underlying brain state or the drugs used to treat ADHD is unknown. Julie's crime arose from the addiction. As part of her probation conditions, she was ordered to attend NA or AA meetings, and she was also ordered to be drug-free and to submit to random drug screens. She had been placed on the medication therapy called Suboxone, and she started using that Suboxone as prescribed. And she also started an intensive outpatient day program where she was showing up uh, every day, all day. And she had just started that on a Monday when on Friday, she went to court per her probation officer's orders, and she submitted to a drug screen. Julie failed the drug screen. She had relapsed, having taken the opioid fentanyl earlier in the week. So I'm assigned to represent Julie at this hearing. And even though I've worked in the system for years, and I should probably have known better, I thought, there's no way this judge will hold this woman. I mean, she's been on probation for 11 days. She's been struggling with addiction since her teenage years. It's not like it happens overnight and will give her some space to try to at least get more into a groove with her recovery. But I was wrong. The judge orders Julie to jail. The judge then assigns to Lisa the responsibility of finding an inpatient rehab facility for Julie as a condition of release. That's not usually the job of an attorney, but it's Lisa we're talking about here. Still, it takes 10 days. There remains this misunderstanding within the court system that if we just order a person to stop using drugs, if we just tell that person, if you use, you're going to jail, that is therefore going to motivate that person to stop using. And what I can tell you from my experience working in the court system for over a decade and working as an outpatient therapist with people on probation and parole and in the prison system where people are actively using drugs is that this fear of punishment is 
not a motivator for most people. While somebody is desperate not to be incarcerated, it's not simply just about this free choice to engage in this compulsive behavior of drug use. Surely judges who have been on the bench for a long time know this. They have their own data about recovery versus recidivism. And if they don't know, they can read the best practices from their own national organization. There's no legal mandate in Massachusetts that judges incarcerate drug violators on probation. So all of this is done on a judge's discretion. Why would they do something over and over again that doesn't solve their problem? I religiously follow the principle of charity. Never attribute irrationality or mistaken belief when a rational explanation will do. I think people are operating on competing conceptions of criminal justice and incarceration. The first is how Lisa thinks about it. Does imprisonment actually work to solve a problem? The problem of drug-addicted offenders? No, incarceration doesn't solve that problem. The data is overwhelming. The very act of punishing and shunning addicts increases the chances of drug use because of the kind of behavior that drug use is. More on that later. But there's another conception that doesn't make these judges have mistaken beliefs. They're punishing people for doing something bad. Do you know what the legal grounds were for incarcerating Julie? Her taking of opioids was a willful violation of probation. There's that word again, willful violation. If you're caught up in the idea that justice is punishing people who do bad things, then it doesn't much matter that your punishment doesn't solve some other problem. The problem that there's a person who's addicted to substances. You're not trying to punish your way out of that problem. The punishment itself is a solution to a problem. The problem of having willful violators walking around who haven't been punished. Lisa was long ready to fight this fight. She found in Julie a perfect client. It was time to take the argument that addiction was a disease up as high as she could. So we argued that it was unlawful to find her in violation because her drug use, given her substance use disorder, was not a willful violation of probation. That's where the other side will say, you know, oh, it's free will, you know, Etc. And that's for us philosophers. To yeah, come that's yeah. which is funny because that's exactly what I thought when I read the brief. I'm like, oh, we're bringing philosophy into the case, and so that's exactly what the Commonwealth argued. Julie had free will. We also made a claim under Eighth Amendment, the federal constitution, that it would be cruel and unusual punishment to be incarcerating her for relapse. The case so far has made it to the Massachusetts Supreme Court. Oral arguments were in the fall of 2017. The court was supposed to issue a decision by February of 2018. That hasn't happened yet. The court asked for an indefinite extension. Lisa doesn't know when the decision is coming down. Scores of addiction medicine specialists, scientific researchers, and civil liberties organizations filed briefs either for or against the arguments Lisa was making in Eldred v. Commonwealth. The briefs were taking the question of the disease model of addiction head-on. Was it a disease or a choice? Is drug use willful? Lisa encountered an unexpected opponent in the courts. We'll look at the arguments after this message from our new sponsor. 
Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Two landmark Supreme Court cases set the stage for all subsequent litigation surrounding addiction and drug use in criminal law. In Robinson v. California, 1962, the Supreme Court struck down a California law that made it a crime to simply be addicted to a drug. The police had evidence that Robinson was a regular drug user. He had needle tracks in his arms, but they didn't bust him for possession or dealing or anything else. They simply used the evidence as evidence of addiction. The Supreme Court considered addiction a status or condition that a person was in and concluded that you can't criminalize a status, only conduct. In ordinary language, the state can't criminalize you for being a certain way, only for doing something. The next test came in Powell v. Texas, 1968. Powell was busted for public intoxication. Was this being a certain way or was this doing something? Ultimately, the court upheld the existence of public intoxication laws on the grounds that you can be an alcoholic but not be drunk in public. That was conduct, not a status. And the court recognized the shaky metaphysical ground here. Think about it. Being an alcoholic can't be criminalized. And getting drunk is conduct that is definitive of being an active alcoholic. How do you take a status that is not criminal, but the status leads to conduct which you say is criminal. You do it with free will. If addiction isn't a biologically-based compulsion, the reasoning goes, then having that status doesn't necessitate anything. Individuals can put the brakes on. The fact that they don't, in a socially determined context in which they should, is an act of free will, therefore blameworthy, therefore liable to criminal sanction. It's about time we talk about free will. It's a philosophical obsession. It's the willful part of willful violation. The classical account of free will has its root in thinking about human immaterial souls. Human souls are thought to be actors, but aren't acted upon. They're little gods, movers of the world, but cannot themselves be moved by it. Why do people eat? You can say it's biology. Hunger is a response mechanism to nutritional needs of the body. Wrong. You eat because you have a soul that freely decides to do that. You're not a slave to biology. You're a slave to nothing. That's why, by the way, people are to blame for what they do. It's a reflection of their soul and nothing else. I have a hard time accepting that the foundations of criminal justice is a belief in an immaterial soul with the power of God in the world. Something we don't have any reason to believe anymore. In fact, neuroscientists even claim that they falsified this view. There's another view that says that free will is putting the brakes on biologically or socially conditioned responses to stimuli. This view says that free will is veto power. It's actually pretty close to how we talk about willpower. When you do something, 
Biology or social conditions drive you to do it. It's not your will. But when you stop yourself from your drives, that is your will. I was extraordinarily nervous, thought I was going to throw up my entire ride into Boston (laughs) on that morning, you know, and also very aware that I felt like not only are the stakes high, you know, for Julie and myself in terms of just wanting to, you know, win this case, there were a lot of other people who'd gotten involved and were relying on me to deliver. Lisa Newman-Polk needs to argue that relapsing during treatment, which is a violation of the probation conditions, are not willful. Backing up Lisa were briefs from addiction treatment organizations, universities, hospitals, even the former president of Switzerland. Switzerland actually solved their opioid crisis in the 90s through decriminalization. There's a lot of brain science, but the upshot is the same. Relapse is a symptom of addiction. It's virtually guaranteed in addicts with other psychiatric conditions like ADHD. So relapse is not willful, even if it is a violation. Lisa cited three Massachusetts cases where supposed willful violations of probation were overturned by the courts as not willful. She argued that Julie's case was just like these. In Commonwealth v. Henry, a judge jailed Henry for willfully violating the court order to pay back Walmart for stolen goods. The problem was, Henry was broke, provably so. The court overturned the violation. The violation wasn't willful if compliance wasn't possible. Commonwealth v. Poirier and Commonwealth v. Canadian. In both cases, the offenders were jailed for willfully violating the installment of GPS monitoring devices on their bodies as a condition of probation. The problem was both were homeless, living on the streets or in shelters. The GPS device needed to be charged. Neither had reliable enough access to an electrical outlet. The court once again overturned the violation. It's not willful if compliance wasn't possible. They pushed on both of us. It went about a half an hour longer than normal. Each side's supposed to get 15 minutes. We both were allowed to argue for approximately 30 minutes. And I found the court to be really engaged with the question and left me entirely unclear how they'll rule. How would you rule? On the other side of the argument, the Commonwealth was arguing free will, and they weren't alone. One of the key claims of a standard disease model is that addicts have no choice in control. There really is increasing evidence that this is just false, that addicts are responsive to incentives in many circumstances. This is Hannah Pickard again, philosopher and clinician. She wasn't involved in the case, but she is one among many academics who are looking to overturn the disease model of addiction on the basis of much newer research. So here's some of that evidence. Many of us know addicts who have just gone cold turkey despite withdrawal. In addition, there's large-scale epidemiological data suggesting that the majority of people who would meet a DSM diagnosis with addiction mature out, as it's called, without clinical intervention when they're in their late 20s or early 30s. So the natural thought there is that's when the kind of responsibilities and opportunities of adult life kick in and so incentivize people to quit. 
It's well known that rates of use in addiction are cost sensitive. Indeed, there are reports of addicts deciding to go into withdrawal so that their tolerance goes down, thereby bringing down the amount of money they need to pay to get high. Some new effective treatments really hone the way in which addiction involves choice and response to incentives. So contingency management treatment basically offers addicts a structure of small immediate rewards in return for drug-free urine samples. They're typically given three times a week and it's been shown to be significantly more effective than other forms of therapy. In addition, Carl Hart has done some wonderful studies in his lab at Columbia, which involve taking crack addicts from New York and bringing them into the lab when they're not high and offering them there and then a choice between some money or a hit. And sometimes they take the hit and sometimes they don't. They take the money and walk out. Finally, there's wonderful work from animal models, which demonstrates that even rats, if you give them alternative choices, will take them when addicted. So much of the drug use within animal models looks like it is caused by limiting the other kinds of goods available to rats, as opposed to giving them an environment where, if they want, there's something else of value for them to do. Putting all of that together, it really looks like the majority of addicts in many, many circumstances have the capacity not to use. These were the exact considerations that the Commonwealth cited. They were backed by an amicus brief by academics and researchers who did the work that Hannah Pickard is explaining. Addiction is a human phenomena and human phenomena are messy. The population of people with substance use disorder is huge, very big by epidemiological standards. A quarter age out of addiction with no intervention. But what does that mean? That it's a choice for everyone? Many addicts respond to positive incentives to quit. But what does that mean? That we can effectively use negative incentives? The percentage of addicts who end up encountering the criminal justice system is small, atypical, extreme. Are you supposed to draw conclusions about them by looking at the bigger population? That can be as mistaken as drawing conclusions about the bigger population by looking at offenders. It's in the middle of these epidemiological and clinical facts that Lisa had to litigate this case. The Commonwealth and their supporters were arguing from the bigger population, drawing conclusions about free will that they think must be true of the population of drug-addicted offenders. And they had one final argument. Think all the way back to Jim McKelvey. Why did the VA need to claim that McKelvey's conditions was in some way the result of his willful misconduct at some point in his past? Because if they didn't, He'd be blameless for his condition, and therefore blameless for missing the deadline for his benefits. You have to find blame somewhere in someone's past if you want to punish them for where they are now. The Commonwealth argued that if you want to punish any addict for any of their crimes, you have to find them to blame at some point in their past. If they're not to blame for their status as addicts, and not to blame for their conduct as drug users, then how could you blame them for the crime that results directly from their drug use? 
I think this is the real issue. It's blame, not free will. The language of the law is all wrong. Willful misconduct, willful violations. They should be struck forever from the law. No court is in a position to determine the answer to a question like this. We don't even agree about what the will is. The question before the court is whether there are any mitigating factors that give an excuse from blame. Lacking free will is one excuse, but there are others. The veto view of free will already mitigates responsibility. If A shoots B and you had the power to stop the bullet but didn't, and B gets killed, A is to blame for killing B, not you. But neither are you fully off the hook for B's death. It depends. How hard was it for you to stop the bullet? What was the cost for you? That's one way to think of addiction, if you're a fan of choice and free will. Maybe people can stop at different points. How hard is it for them? What were the costs? Hannah Pickard is a choice theorist, but she's not a fan of blame. In fact, you're not going to find a lot of choice theorists about addiction who are fans of blame these days. And that's not because they hate free will. It's because they're locating the problem of addiction elsewhere. One of the things that was supposed to be a benefit of the disease model was the move away from morality, right? The disease model was supposed to erase stigma. Does the choice model bring it back in? It could. If you're a choice theorist, I think you have an obligation to make sure that it doesn't. So here's how you do that. If you think back to the moral model of addiction, that has two parts to it. It has the idea that addiction is a choice, and then it has the moral condemnation of that choice. My own view is that choice theorists, in virtue of acknowledging the choice component of addiction, need to work to maintain a non-stigmatizing, non-condemnatory attitude. And that has to do with interrogating our own understanding of why people use drugs, and in some sense turning the spotlight as much on ourselves and our society as we do on addicts. Just because somebody has a choice, first of all, doesn't mean we need to blame and stigmatize them for making that choice. Second of all, we often need to contextualize that choice so we understand it in relation to factors which may mitigate responsibility or mitigate any tendency we have to condemn or blame. Choice theorists don't think it's the brain compelling people to addiction. They think it's a certain kind of brain placed in awful circumstances. Those circumstances are our fault. The brain, together with the circumstances, lead to drug use as the only way to cope. Addiction is associated with personality disorders as well as mood and anxiety disorders, all of which are defined by having intense negative emotions. So given that association, we can really see drug use as a way of sedating people, as a way of getting some relief from the suffering which severe and intense psychological pain and distress brings. Many people who have mental health problems, especially of those sorts, typically live in impoverished circumstances and have complicated relationships with others as well as limited opportunities. So you have external suffering as well and not very many ways of managing it. So all of that combined points to the way drug use for people with comorbid mental health problems really is a coping mechanism. It's a way of managing the miseries of life. There's another feature which is true for some patients in that category, with people who come from backgrounds where they were mistreated as children. Sometimes their self-concept is such that 
they don't care about themselves. They actually dislike themselves and feel like they deserve to suffer or be punished in some ways. So that kind of mindset is part of potentially the explanation of all forms of self-harm, which can include drug abuse. Hannah Pickard is arguing for a view she calls responsibility without blame. Drug addiction for Pickard arises from often false beliefs about one's self-worth, denial about negative consequences, and it's done in a social context in which no other options give someone with those beliefs and attitudes an alternative to coping. But you are still responsible, in the sense that you had agency in that circumstance. You are not to blame. The blame lies elsewhere. The moral model says the problem is all with the addicts. The disease model says the problem's not with the addicts, it's with their brain. But in neither case do we look at the social context which seems to cause people to turn to drugs as opposed to providing them with other options that might be better. That's a question for all of us. I've thought about the question. I don't know what we're doing. Whether addicts used by choice in a social context they're not responsible for, or by compulsion from a sick brain, the solution has been settled. It's been settled in other countries. It's been settled in this one in clinical practice. Addicts are not to blame for their state and can be taken out of it in the right conditions. Jail is not one of them. The idea of punishing an addict, even if it is a choice, is just perverse. It's a conclusion I came to while thinking about Hannah Pickard's work. Imagine thinking that the right thing to do to a cutter, someone who self-mutilates, is to impose a punishment on them for cutting. Self-harm is bad. So why not impose some suffering on them to punish them for their bad behavior? Maybe we should punish them by cutting them. What are you doing when you dish out retributive justice for those whose injustice is self-harm? Can you see the absurdity of this practice? All right, last question now. How's Julie doing? Julie is doing well. She loves to work with animals, and that has been her main focus. She's continuing to, to do work where she gets to interact with animals, and she's just trying to stay focused one day at a time. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm okay. I've been better, but I'm all right. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, so let's talk. Okay. Um, are we recording right now? Yeah, we're rolling. Okay. Describe to me where you were, what you heard, and then how you got the decision. Well, I learned at about, I don't know, 8, 8.30 in the morning that a decision was coming out. And I rushed over to my co-counsel, Ben Keene's office in Framingham, Massachusetts, so that we could read the decision together and discuss and um, opened up the decision on his computer. I saw who it was written by, who was uh, Justice Lowy, and um, quite honestly, immediately burst into tears because I knew that we had lost. So... Um, we scrolled down quickly to see if there was a dissent or a concurring opinion. 
and there was none, which just was like a whole other level of devastation. So it, you know, sort of slowly became evident that this was a seven zero decision against us. And as we read through it, it was clear that we had lost in every single way, um, not a nod of acknowledgement pretty much to anything that we had set forth. It was um, just a hundred percent loss from my perspective. The judges of the Massachusetts Supreme Court did indeed deny every single one of Lisa's arguments in the Eldred case. They claimed that when Julie violated probation by relapsing on fentanyl, she was jailed for the previous crime of larceny, not the relapse itself. So it wasn't the case that the state was criminalizing or criminally punishing relapse. She was being punished for larceny. The court claimed that jailing someone who they believed ahead of time will relapse has to be okay because judges should be allowed to determine ahead of time whether relapsing would be dangerous for the person or the community. They took this reasoning to apply directly to the case of Julie Eldred because jailing her after relapsing on probation is simply equivalent to jailing her ahead of time for relapsing and not giving her probation. Yeah, well, they also didn't answer the question that was presented before them. They didn't answer the question that we briefed and we argued to the court. The issue we presented was when a probationer is addicted to substances, is it constitutional to basically order that that person be symptom-free and then punish the person if they're not symptom-free? But basically, the court just decided they didn't like that question. And so they entirely changed the question of law. So they answered a question that we didn't brief to the court and we didn't argue to the court. And they pretty much just rolled right over our argument, you know, that substance use disorder is um, a brain disease, a brain disorder that impairs someone's ability to stop using when they're really in the throes of addiction. And um, it was as if, you know, it was as if we hadn't (laughs) briefed them entirely on the subject and had, you know, Nikki brief them fully on the subject. It was just like the idea of substance use disorder as a disease is just completely irrelevant to them. The discussion of whether Julie Eldred's probation violation was willful was curious to say the least. On my reading, the court was expressing that Lisa's argument bears the standard of proof. It was up to Lisa to prove to the courts that substance use disorder bypassed the free will of the addict. And that's fair enough. But the courts didn't explicitly make a judgment about the veracity of the scientific or philosophical arguments that Lisa made. Let me read you this curious line from the decision. The affidavit submitted by the defendant in support of her position that her violation was not willful because addiction affects the brain in such a way that certain individuals cannot control their drug use did not require the judge to accept her argument. Think about what that means. It sounds like the Supreme Court is saying, you did submit evidence that drug addiction bypassed your free will. And I know that we're in a position to make a judgment about how good that evidence is, but we're not going to do that. The fact that some lower court judge didn't accept this evidence as good enough is enough for us to jail you. They just weren't interested in answering the question. I mean, that's honestly how I feel. And obviously, I'm really down and out about the whole thing. It was 
an extraordinary blow to have it be 7-0 and to have a decision issue that really just ignored the um, just ignored the arguments we put before them and decided to really just rubber stamp the status quo. Why I find this incredibly frustrating is that part of our blue brief to the court was including chapter two of the Surgeon General's report on addiction. And honestly, I don't know what else is consensus if the Surgeon General is not. That's exactly what the Surgeon General is for. You know, instead of citing anything that the experts in the field of addiction and neuroscience have put out there, you know, instead they decided to rely upon some standards that the Supreme Judicial Court and the trial court apparently wrote in 1998 um, as their guidance. I just find it quite incredible that the justices are simply citing to standards that judges wrote in 1998, well before the very recent Surgeon General report, as their guidance on how to deal with people suffering from addiction Rather than looking to um, any of the experts in the field, I, I, I find it, I find it, frankly, I find it offensive. As I said before, the status quo is a really dysfunctional way of treating people with addiction in the criminal justice system. And um, so obviously, I'm just hugely disappointed that um, instead of making any progress in this area, I, I feel like the decision has I don't know, potentially made things worse by having a 2018 decision that is so bad in this area. Are there any next steps for you at this point? Well, I know you want me to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Of course I do. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, after the decision, I was so upset that I was just thinking, I'm not practicing law anymore. This is why I went into social work to begin with. I can't practice law. It's so incredibly frustrating. So much of it feels like banging my head against the wall. And um, and it is hard to the extent that I have been making this argument for years to so many different judges, you know, and I was so hopeful about getting a ruling that would actually dictate something. And instead, I just got all of them to say, no, you're wrong. That's right. <laughs> right. everyone says I'm wrong. Yeah. It's the <laughs> life you're leading, you know. Like. <laughs> In terms of next steps, I mean, I think that my colleagues and I are all just trying to regroup on how to keep pushing the issue at the trial court level. And, you know, we've been encouraged by some smart minds to try to basically build another case based on what you could say is the guidance from the SJCM, what they'd want in the next case. You know, there there are other ways that I'm going after the issue. You know, I'm working on a documentary about the criminalization of addiction and um, hoping to speak with legislators about perhaps um, coming up with legislation to try to deal with this problem. But um, clearly we're not getting anywhere in the court system for the time being. Well, Lisa, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you, Barry. I appreciate it. Stay tuned, because the next episode of Hi-Fi Nation will be out next week. 
This episode of Hi-Fi Nation was produced, written, and edited by Barry Lamb. This episode was made possible by a generous Patreon donation from James Cropcho. You too can support the show with a monthly or one-time donation by visiting hifination.org. That's H-I-P-H-I nation.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. 